Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians and turn to chapter 5, we're going to be looking at a text that I think at least uh, obliquely deals with the Lord's Supper uh, in some ways. Uh, We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. And if you are able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Give ear to God's word. Paul writes, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The sin is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, um, if you are familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, you might know that that book is um, sort of not, it's not a hodgepodge of different things connected together, but there's an element of that to it. It seems as if there was a correspondence going back and forth between Paul and the church, and they would write to him asking him about different things, and so he addressed those different things uh, throughout the letter. So one thing doesn't always lead right into the next. Sometimes it's, it'll say something like, as to what you wrote to me about this, and here's what he says. Um, well, this particular chapter, chapter 5, if you're familiar with it, uh, Paul is dealing with uh, sexual immorality in the church. He says, even of a sort that the pagans didn't do. In other words, it, it wasn't just, it would be bad enough if there were sexual immorality in the church, as there, there often is throughout uh, the church's history, but uh, sometimes it's of a kind that those who are unbelievers, it gives them an opportunity to blaspheme. They're like, look at these Christians. We don't even do that. And so Paul, Paul addresses it. Much of this chapter is about what we might call church discipline. He calls for the person to be removed, uh, to be basically to be excommunicated for a time uh, from the church. And so that's, that's hit this, the topic in general of this chapter. But I chose this passage for this morning's sermon because of what I think of its relevance to and the application of Paul's teaching regarding the Lord's Supper. He spends a great deal of time in this book elsewhere, in chapters 11 and elsewhere, 10 and 11 really on the Lord's Supper. But I think this chapter also at least briefly touches on that subject. The, the Bible's teaching on the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper uh, in particular is, I think, uh, among other things, it's one of those topics that I think is too much neglected in the church today. Uh, Even in churches where they celebrate the Lord's Supper, very often there's almost no teaching on the subject. I can recall uh, in my early days uh, really receiving almost no instruction on it whatsoever. Whatever instructions I was given as a church member was usually the five-little-minute whatever thing the pastor said right before the supper, which wasn't very much, and it wasn't, you know, due to time, very instructive in that regard. Um, But, you know, so it's often sometimes our doctrine of the Lord's Supper is kind of assumed rather than explicitly taught or stated. And so I think it's always good for us from time to time to spend a little bit of time in our sermon time looking at what the Bible has to say about the subject of the Lord's Supper. Um, In verse 7 of our text, Paul tells the church at Corinth that the reason that they are to cleanse out the old leaven of sin from among them 
is because they have already been cleansed. They've already become unleavened by the atoning death of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says there in verse 7, for Christ our Passover, or uh, the ESV says Passover lamb, but it's really just Passover. Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. That is why we are to cleanse ourselves from, uh, from the leaven of sin, because in Christ, by his death, we who believe have been cleansed from it. It's, it's, you know, the Bible very often um, gives us imperatives or commands uh, to us who are Christians, and it, it reads almost like this. Be, become what you are in Christ. Grow, grow in Christ. Become more of what you already have been made in Jesus Christ. And it's clear that the Lord Jesus Christ in his death on the cross, according to our text, it, uh, Paul tells us that Christ in his death on the cross is the real fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover. Both the initial Passover in Exodus 12, when it first happened, as well as in the feast that was uh, observed annually among uh, Israel all those years down through the centuries. The Passover, uh, as Rob sort of mentioned something like this just a few minutes ago, the Passover was meant to point, point us forward to the cross of Christ and his blood being shed on the cross for our forgiveness of our sins. That was the point of it the entire time and Christ's death fulfilled uh, everything about the Passover. It's why it's no longer observed as it was in the Old Testament. Uh, in our short text this morning, Paul refers, he doesn't name them so much, but he refers to them both the feasts in the Old Testament of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Those two were very much connected uh, Passover was basically the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and you had a week, this week-long feast afterward, which they called the, the, week, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, if you read Exodus chapter 12, we'll touch on it a little bit this morning, but we don't have time to read the whole thing. But I'll point you to that chapter if you want to read more on those two festivals or feasts. The Passover, you may know, was an annual feast that commemorated the Passover in Egypt. And that was when the Israelite families, what they would do is they were commanded to sacrifice a lamb or a, uh, a goat. And they were to put some of the blood on the doorposts and the lintel of the door of the home that they were in. And they were to eat that, that lamb and, and participate in that sacrifice by doing that. And uh, what they do is put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel, Exodus chapter 12, verse 7. And what that was, it was related to the tenth and final plague. Remember all the plagues that God God judged Egypt for holding his people in slavery. He also judged their gods by these plagues. And, and what was told them to do was sacrifice this lamb, put the blood on the doorpost and the lintel of the door of the home they're in. And when God, the angel of the Lord, passed over, it's where you get the word Passover from. When he saw the blood, he passed by or passed over that house. And the, the judgment that fell on the Egyptians did not fall on the firstborn of, of the Israelites. Uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread followed right on the heels of that Feast of Passover. And in some ways, what the, what the Feast of Unleavened Bread was, is it, was, it represented in some ways the people's response to their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. It was a feast or festival. It was to be a joyous time. Uh, it was a week long. But one of the things that may strike you and I as a little bit strange was this command to remove all the leaven from their homes. No one was to have any leaven in their homes that week. All their bread was to be eaten that was supposed to be unleavened. No leaven was to be in their bread. And as we see uh, both 
in our text and elsewhere, leaven, you know, think of yeast kind of, kind of thing, leaven was a symbol of sin. It was, a, it was a representation of a symbol or sign of sin. And so removing the leaven from the home in response to being delivered from slavery in Egypt was to be a, a picture, a teaching moment, as we like to say these days, of, of repentance, of removing of sin in response to God's grace. In other words, turning from sin. And that is always to be the Christian's response. In fact, when we, we read the Ten Commandments this morning in Exodus chapter 20, I often point out, because I just think it's helpful to remember it, um, there's part of that, that passage, the first two verses, Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, which the Shorter Catechism calls the preface to the Ten Commandments. It says, what does it teach? It's the part where it says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who did what? Past tense, brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And I often say there's no word therefore in the text, but it's in, it's in the white space between verses 2 and 3. You know, The implication is, because I have saved you, therefore live like this. No other gods before me, no idolatry, don't take my name in vain, remember the Sabbath, all these things. Those commandments and our obedience as believers to God's commands are to be a response to God's grace. It's very important to keep that order straight. Uh, our natural bent is to say, I'll do these things, and then God is obliged to save me. God says, no, uh, you were helpless in slavery in Egypt. I reached down with a mighty outstretched arm and saved you. Now, because of that, because I've already saved you, I've already made you my people and become your God by my grace, live this way. And it's meant to be, even as you read the commandments, people often think of the commandments as a, a legalistic thing. as you know, obey, Obeying God, oh, that's a legalistic thing. No, God says, remember, those he shows steadfast love to thousands who do what? Who love me and keep my commandments. Love for God has always been the Christian motivation, the main one for obedience. And we love him because he loved us first. So obedience is not to earn anything. It's not to put God in your, in your debt. We can't possibly do that. It's always been a grateful response to God's grace. Well, the, the remarkable thing, I think, uh, for our purposes this morning in our sermon is that Paul brings up these two Old Testament feasts in the middle of a passage on church discipline and, and repentance. Now, he brings these two Old Testament feasts in order to press upon the Corinthian church their duty as believers to walk in a manner that's befitting their profession of faith in Christ. He, he brings up things that they weren't even observing anymore, right? I mean, the Christians in Corinth, they weren't observing Passover. They weren't observing the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But it's clear that he taught them these things from the Old Testament. That was the Bible that Paul preached and taught from, right? He was writing parts of the New Testament. We're reading from one of the letters now. But, but Paul taught them the whole counsel of God, and even taught them about those feasts back in the Old Testament that we might find so strange. He, he taught them to them, and he referred to them in the midst of his exhortations to them to walk in a way uh, that's pleasing to the Lord by walking in holiness. It's amazing that he does that, and he brings up the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and expects them to understand the reference he expects them to understand the, the way that Christ fulfilled those things and how those things, in a way, apply to us today. 
And so while the Christians in Corinth obviously were not celebrating those two Jewish Old Testament feasts or festivals, they were taught about them. They were taught the reality of what they pointed forward to in Christ, and they were expected to live differently in light of these things. Now, the first thing I think we need to understand, and maybe you're already wondering this as you sit here listening, uh, I think we need to understand rightly the relationship between the sacraments of the Old Testament and the sacraments of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you may or may not know, there were two sacraments then as well. They had many feast days, but they had two, we think, two sacraments, and that was circumcision and the Passover. In the New Testament, there are also two, not seven, two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And those, those two sets correspond to each other. The, one, the ones in the New Testament are, the, are kind of the ones that took up the baton from the ones in the Old. And they both serve the same purpose as those ones did in the Old Testament. What was, what was circumcision in the Old Testament? It was the, the, the sacrament, the sign and seal of union with Christ, even in the Old Testament. It was the sign and seal of incorporation within God's people. To become part of Israel, even if you were a Gentile, you could do that, but what did you have to do? You were a male, you had to be circumcised to become part of the people of Israel. Likewise, the Passover, in, in a lot of ways, is, is very similar and serves the same purpose as the Lord's Supper does in the New Testament age. In fact, this correspondence, you may not know, is taught explicitly in Scripture. Paul, in, in the book of Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, says the following. He says, in him, that's in Christ, in him... Also, you were circumcised, and here it is, with a circumcision made without hands. How? By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And how was it done? Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So what does Paul do there? Paul equates, or shows how they correspond, circumcision and baptism how were you circumcised without hands in other words it wasn't a physical circumcision by your baptism and mainly by what your baptism spiritually represents baptism corresponds to circumcision in the old testament circumcision represents signs and seals what baptism does in the new both were given as outward visible signs and seals of an inward and invisible grace both were given as the sacrament of union with Christ and with the covenant community or visible church of their day. They both serve the same purpose. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 27, I, I'll be quoting from it a few times here, the confession in this sermon. I, I, I exhort you to, to read it upon yourself. If you have a copy, uh, take a look at it. Read the chapter on the sacraments on the Lord's Supper. If you don't have a copy, let us know. We will get some more. But 27.5 of the Confession says this, The sacraments of the Old Testament in regard of the spiritual things thereby signified and exhibited, you know, shown forth, were for the substance of them the same with those of the new. They served the same purpose. What does that mean? It means that the Old Testament, the, the circumcision and the Passover, were never just outward acts. Just like baptism and the Lord's Supper aren't just outward acts in the New Testament. They were both signs and seals even back then 
of an inward and invisible spiritual grace. And that grace was to be found in Christ. They, in other words, they both were signs and seals of the covenant of grace in Jesus Christ. Those things were not just a New Testament thing. They were also in the Old Testament. Circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign and seal of the same things as baptism is now in our day. Likewise, Passover, the Passover meal, was a sign and seal of the same things as the Lord's Supper is now in the New Testament age. These things have always been intended as signs and seals of the covenant of grace, the same in substance, the same in essence or substance, but just administered differently in the New Testament than they were in the Old. The sacraments have always been given, as the Confession says in 27.1, to represent Christ and his benefits, to confirm our interest in him, the fact that we are believers and give us assurance, to put a visible difference between those who belong unto the church and the rest of the world, and to solemnly engage them to the service of God and Christ according to his word. Same exact thing as it was in the Old Testament as it is in the New. This is, uh, this is a whole different sermon. I won't get into this too much. This is why we baptize babies. People often say, oh, there's no verse that says thou shalt baptize your babies. No, but there is a verse saying circumcise your male children eight days old. And there is a correspondence between circumcision and baptism. And so as many much greater theologians than I would ever pretend to be have pointed out, there would need to be a verse in the scripture saying don't do that anymore because of the correspondence. If, if something was going to be changed, the change would actually be stopping doing that, stopping applying the covenant seal to your children. And so we believe, as the scripture teaches, when it talks about baptizing households, that it did include babies, even included infants in the covenant community. Infants were included in the covenant community, the Old Testament church in the Old Testament, and they are therefore included in the New Testament as well. Now, here's the thing about the Lord's Supper. Where did the sacrament, or I should say when, when did the sacrament of the Lord's Supper start? Where are its roots? Was it, was it cut from whole cloth in the Gospels, or did it start in some ways essentially earlier? The, the roots of it are not just in the Gospels of the New Testament. The roots of the Lord's Supper are in the Old Testament. The origins of the, of the Lord's Supper lie in the Passover in the Old Testament. When did Jesus Christ our Lord institute the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? What time of year did he do that? The Jewish religious calendar, when, when was it? Four times in Matthew chapter 26, we are told that this was done, that he, he had the Lord's Supper with, the, with his disciples at the time of the Passover, four times. It's like the chapter just keeps hitting that nail on the head over and over again. It was at the Passover. He was celebrating the Passover with his disciples when he did that. In fact, it was in the midst of him keeping the Passover with his disciples, Matthew 26 18. It was when he was doing that that he instituted the Lord's Supper a few verses later in that chapter. We are to draw the, the, connect the dots, so to speak, and say this is what he's doing. He is uh, uh, making a new observation to take the place of the Passover. Richard Phillips writes the following. He says, by instituting the Lord's Supper on that occasion, Jesus intended for this new ordinance 
to supersede the Passover in the religious life of his disciples. Not surprisingly, the institution presents a clear continuity with the Passover. We are to connect those dots the way the scripture presented. Verse 7 of our text, Paul says, what does he say? Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. That is why the new covenant sacrament of communion no longer involves the shedding of blood. It no longer involves an animal sacrifice. The Lamb of God has now come in Jesus Christ and offered his body once for all as the sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. The Old Testament Passover, what did it do? It, in some ways, it did two things. It pointed back to the Lamb and the deliverance from Egypt, but it pointed forward mainly to the coming of Christ uh, who came and died for his people. It also looked forward to the coming of Messiah as, as Isaiah chapter 53 talks about the Lamb of God coming to pay the price for our sins. So now that Jesus Christ has now come and once for all shed his blood at the end of the age for the salvation of his people, it's no wonder then that the covenant signs and seals are now altered. They're not done away with in a sense. They are, they are kind of taken over or superseded by signs and seals that now have no more shedding of blood. So in the Old Testament, you had circumcision, which was a bloody ritual, a painful ritual, one that I can't imagine being a grown adult and having to go through it to become part of the people. That's what they were told to do, right? They were commanded to do that. It involved the shedding of blood. It was a, a surgery, so to speak. And the Passover involved the shedding of the blood of a lamb. In the New Testament, because Christ has already died and shed his blood once for all, we still have those two sacraments, but they're changed, aren't they? Now, now what we have, we don't have circumcision, we have baptism. And water, among other things, is a symbol of the cleansing of Christ's blood. But it's a sign of it. We don't actually have blood involved. The table, we don't have blood as part of our thing. We have the wine, the, the wine that represents the blood of Christ shed for our sins. So both the sacrament uh, of circumcision and the Passover both involved shedding of blood in the New Testament because Christ has now come and died and fulfilled those things. We now have signs and seals that represent Christ's blood and the effects of it in our salvation. Well, before we spend too much time looking at the application of what Paul's doctrine of the cross here in our text teaches us, I think we should spend some time dwelling on the significance of his statement about Christ being our Passover and having been sacrificed for us. What what was the significance of the Passover lamb? Have you ever thought about that when you've read that text? What exactly was that meant to teach? What did it represent? How did the Passover lamb point forward to the coming of Christ who was yet them to come for our salvation from sin? Each family in Israel was to take a lamb. Exodus 12 verse 5 specifies, as later verses do as well, it was to be a lamb, one year old, and the most important part, without blemish. Remember, we, we went through Malachi probably a year ago or so, and one of the things they were doing wrong at the temple was they were offering blemish sacrifices. They were saying, oh, I've got, you know, basically, uh, God's not blessing me in my harvest. God's not blessing me, you know, my, my, uh, my their, their monetary success was their flocks, their herds, their harvests. And they were saying, you know, God's kind of shut the windows of heaven our crops aren't growing, our herds aren't, aren't uh, being blessed. So rather than giving God what he requires, 
They would bring God a crippled lamb or a blind lamb or one that had been torn by a beast, things that, that God had specifically said, don't do that. And they were surprised that God wasn't happy with that. God basically said, oh, that there was a man who would just shut the doors. Like, just close the church, so to speak. Close the temple. If you're going to do that, let's just stop. Why did the lamb have to be without blemish? What's it a picture of? It's a picture of without sin. And so the one who would be sacrificed in the place of, of, of the sinner had to be without sin. And so for the lamb to be blemished was a picture of, of a sacrifice that would not do. It was not a picture of Christ who was without sin, even though he was tempted in all manners as we have been. He was without sin. They were to take a lamb without blemish. They were to kill it as a sacrifice. They were to take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they ate it. Exodus 12, verse 7. I've often said, and this is my speculation, you can disregard this, but when I, in my head, when I, when I read those words, it sounds like the doorposts, one on each side and one on the top, the lintel and the doorposts. You know, you ever, when you were a kid, you ever had those connected dots books where you would take the pencil and go from one to two to three, and when you were done, it was a picture. Well, in my mind, and I could be wrong, so feel free to disregard this. Um, this is my speculation. I connect the dots, and it looks like a cross. I think maybe that's what that was sort of meant to foreshadow. We don't know for sure, but it sure seems that that is a possibility. Well, Exodus 12, verses 12 to 13, then goes on to say this. It says, here's God talking, For, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, the night of the Passover, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Here it is. The blood, the blood on the doorposts and the lintel. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. That's where you get the word Passover from. Not, not complicated at all. But it's a picture of being spared from judgment. It's a picture of being saved is what it really is. There was a judgment coming, and the only way to avoid that judgment was the blood of the lamb. I don't think it takes a, a rocket surgeon to point out the, the implications of that, uh, how, it, how it points forward to Christ. Now, the judgment upon Egypt and Egypt's God was coming. He was going to strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And the Israelites were not just spared that judgment because they were the Israelites. You ever think about that? Is your, was your ex, if you never read the text before, ex, the story of Exodus, wouldn't your expectation kind of just be, you know, God is going to show a distinction between his people and the people of Egypt, and just because they're the Israelites, they're fine. Just sit tight, guys. I'm going to rain down judgment. No, God says, you know, if you don't do this, the same judgment, really, that fell upon the Pharaoh and all the Egyptians is going to fall on you. That's a teachable moment, isn't it? God is saying, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And that is what this whole event, this whole plague, was a picture of. And the fact that it was a judgment on the firstborn, the firstborn son of each, per, of each family, is also, I think, a picture of of Christ in some ways as well. If any of the Israelites had failed to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the outside of the doorframe of the house they were in, they too were going to lose their firstborn son. 
just like the Egyptian families did. To be in the house that was marked by the blood of the lamb was to be covered and redeemed by that blood. A substitute had died in the place of their firstborn. Sounds a lot like Jesus dying in the place of sinners. The blood had indicated that a substitute had died in the place of those in the house. So their sin was atoned for in the sight of God. Now the book of Hebrews, which is all about in many ways the Old Testament sacrificial system and why we no longer have to observe it. But the book of Hebrews says a couple very important things in this regard. Hebrews 9.22, I've already mentioned it. But it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. God doesn't just sweep our sins under the rug, so to speak. I know nobody actually does that anymore, but we still use that phrase, right? That's, that's that figure of speech. God doesn't just say, yeah, boys will be boys. Sin has a price, and it must be paid. And if, if, if we don't have our sins paid for by Christ, by another, uh, other than ourselves, then we will pay it ourselves. Hebrews 10.4, just a little bit past that verse, says, It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What does that mean? It means all those Old Testament sacrifices were not an end in and of themselves. The blood of the lamb, even the Passover lamb, in and of itself had no power to forgive sin. But what did it do? It was a symbol, a sign of Christ who was to come. Their faith wasn't in in an animal. Their faith wasn't in killing an animal and putting the blood on the house. They had to do that because God commanded it. Their faith was in what it pointed them forward to, the Christ who was yet to come. How much did the Old Testament saints understand about that? We don't know, but my hunch is they knew more than we think they did. When you read the Hebrews chapter 11, you see a lot of things where you're like, wow, they they really had some faith in things that I didn't know they even knew about. But that's, that's what those things were for. The, the, the Passover lamb pointed forward to Christ who was to come. And so those animal sacrifices all throughout the Old Testament that were commanded by God in and of themselves never atoned for or took away sin. What they did was point forward to Christ who was to come as what John the Baptist calls him. Remember what he said in John 1.29? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. The death of Christ on the cross made the temple and the Old Testament sacrificial system obsolete because he fulfilled all their purposes. We mentioned this, I think, yesterday. You know, what was, what, was the, what was the accusation or the crime that Jesus was charged with, which they used to crucify him? Among other things, it was speaking against the temple. Remember, he, he said... Tear, tear this, this temple down, and in three days I'll raise it back up again. And they're like, oh, he's thre- insurrection. He's going to destroy the temple. We better, we better put him to death. But what, is the, what does the gospel writer say? He was talking about his body. The temple was a picture of Christ's body. The, the temple was a picture of Christ, the place where sinful man can go and meet with God safely and be forgiven. The, the sacrificial system itself was a picture of Christ, the priesthood was a picture of Christ. The animals themselves and the sacrifice were all pictures of Christ and his death. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, a little bit later on, says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of that sin is death. 
We require an atonement, a sacrifice to be done in our place, which is what Christ and Christ alone did. Before we move on to other things in our text, I, I, I think I have to ask, you know, Paul says, Christ our Passover. Is Christ your Passover? J.C. Ryle, my, one of my favorite old writers, he quotes Martin Luther. He doesn't say where he got the quote from, so I don't know. But he quotes Martin Luther as having said this. Luther apparently said, Many are lost because they cannot use possessive pronouns. Was he, being, was he giving a grammar lesson? Is that what Luther was doing? Was Luther the, the, the grammar Nazi running around? No. What he's saying is people can understand right Christian doctrine, but they don't apply it. They don't appropriate it. They're, they might believe that in some general way and have a general faith that Christ is the Savior of sinners and that people need to believe on him to be saved. But it's not enough to recite the Apostles' Creed and understand these things to be true indeed. That's a good start. If you deny those things, I don't think your faith is, is saving faith. But you actually have to come to believe on Christ for salvation for yourself. You don't trust that Christ is a Savior or even the Savior. You have to trust and believe that Christ is your Savior. You have to come to him by faith for salvation yourself. You must trust in Christ alone for salvation so that you can say, Again, not just that Christ is a or even the Savior, but that Christ is your Savior, that he is your Passover who was sacrificed. So I'll ask this morning, I'd ever assume, is Christ your Savior? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ yourself to save you from your sins? Well, last but not least, let's look at the application of this doctrine that Paul himself points us to in our text. You know, I think it's instructive that what Paul does in all of his letters Really, all the epistles in the New Testament, not even just his, they, they teach things, but never in a vacuum. He teaches theology, and then he teaches the application of that doctrine, what it should lead to. And that's what he does here. Points us, uh, he does in verse 7, he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And then what does he say? Cleanse out the old leaven, verse 7, uh, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Now, Again, the context you might think is an odd one. It was church discipline. It involved removing an unrepentant person from the fellowship of the church, at least for a time, because they had committed scandalous sexual sin and were refusing to repent of it. And this is something we must surely consider in our own day. You know, many, Paul says your boasting is not good in verse 6. And you might think, who was boasting of sin? What kind of a strange church was the church in Corinth? Many in the visible church today... There are whose boasting is not good, the way that Paul puts it here. In verse 6, there are those who openly tolerate gross immorality in the church and imagine that they are somehow, in doing that, magnifying the grace of God in doing so. There is a kind of tolerance that God does not tolerate and should not be in the church as well. But Paul rebukes that mindset and says, your boasting is not good. Now this, we might think, well, that's those liberal churches out there. and that, they're, they're, That's true enough. There are many churches out there that, that tolerate and even celebrate gross immorality of many kinds. But there are many, even in ostensibly reformed churches today, even in the PCA, our own denomination, who endorse, for example, so-called side B gay Christianity. They say that as long as somebody 
abstains from the outward act of homosexual sin, that they say the inclination itself, the attraction itself, is not necessarily sinful or to be repented of. In fact, in some cases, many of them would say it's to be celebrated rather than to be shunned or repented of. I think Paul would say to such as that, your boasting is not good. This is not pleasing to God. What does Paul say? Instead, he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. What does that mean? The tolerance of open, scandalous sin will inevitably lead to more of the same. That's why church discipline, among other things, is so necessary for the health and purity and peace of the church. That's why we have to do these things. That's why Paul spends most of the entire chapter discussing that, but he brings up the Passover in the midst of doing it. But there's more application here than just that. Surely it's the case that the cleansing out of the leaven of sin has a personal application for each of us who professes to believe in Christ for salvation because that's what leaven in our text is a symbol of. It's a symbol of sin and its effects. In other words, that it spreads. Charles Hodge writes the following. He says, he says when the paschal lamb, that's the Passover lamb, when the paschal lamb was slain, the Hebrews were required to purge out all leaven from their houses, Exodus 12 and 15. The death of Christ imposes a similar obligation on us to purge out the leaven of sin. And I would only add that that was the point for them as well. They were to, they were to get rid of the leaven, but they were to understand there was a, symbol, a symbolism involved in doing so. And so I'll ask this morning, and it's always appropriate as we come to this table, we are to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. We are to examine ourselves of our sins and shortcomings and need of repentance. Um, I think it's, 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 it's fitting to ask these things. Is there, for example, a besetting sin that you need to renew your repentance from? As we come to this table, do you think of things that God has been working in your life on and, you need to, and he's been showing things to you, revealing certain things, certain sins that you know you need to repent of uh, and walk in newness of life towards. Let the celebration of the Lord's Supper be the occasion of that. Every time we have the Lord's Supper, every Sunday, but every time we have the Lord's Supper, think of that. And say, is there, is there something I need to repent of that is marring, not undoing, but marring, harming my communion with Christ and his people? This is the time. This is the time to think on those things. Uh, and even as it's part of preparing for the table, isn't it? We should think on, on these things. Now, some commentators, including Charles Hodge, no less, uh, they see no reference to the Lord's Supper in Paul's words in verse 8 when he says, keep the feast and when he talks about the Passover. But I, I don't think it's limited to that. But I have a hard time believing that it has no, uh, that Paul had no idea of the Lord's Supper in mind when he talks about keeping the feast he's addressing the church corporately he's addressing he includes addressing about the lord's supper later on in the book he brings up the passover he talks about keeping the feast now i think when he says keep the feast he's talking about the whole christian life but i do think at least in some regard he's alluding to the lord's supper at least in part in our text as we've seen the passover is the roots of the, of the Lord's Supper. And so I think that's what he is at least hinting at in our text. Now, 
The entire Christian life is to be a perpetual keeping of the feast of our salvation. It's to be a constant ridding our lives of the leaven of sin. But I think that's especially the case when we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. The Confession of Faith uh, says this in chapter 29. It says, Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood called the Lord's Supper to be observed in his church until the end of the world. And here, here are the purposes of it. For the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself in his death, the sealing all benefits thereof unto true believers, the spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties to which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. So, you know, we sometimes, uh, I think, think of only half of the picture. You know, I know that in some churches in my, in my past, um, they focused on baptism and the Lord's Supper all being about what you do or you profess to God, right? Uh, and so sometimes in Reformed churches, we say, oh, no, no, that's not what that's about. It's all about what Christ has done for you. Well, the confession says it's both. It is about the covenant of grace in Christ. It's about Christ's death on your behalf and the salvation that is ours by grace. But it also, as the confession says there, is about our further engagement in and to all duties which we owe unto him as our Savior. And it's a bond and pledge of our communion with him and with each other as the church. It is, as we read before, the sacraments both set us apart from the world. They mark us as belonging to God. And because they mark us as belonging to God, we are to walk in newness of life. Walk in holiness of life. And that's what Paul says about keeping the feast not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I think he's not just talking about truth in doctrine, although it includes that. He's talking about how we live. How we live reflecting, being an accurate reflection of the gospel that we believe, the gospel of Christ. So may we who believe learn to be strengthened in the grace of Christ as we come to this table this morning and every communion Sunday. May we feed on Christ's body and blood by faith by the work of the Spirit, that you and I might grow in our communion with Christ and with each other to the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.